Hello, hello, this is Alex Burkett, and you are listening to the Long Game Podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Neil Schaefer. Neil has written four books, his most recent being The Age of Influence, The Power of Influencers to Elevate Your Brand. He also acts as a fractional CMO, helping companies maximize their digital presence and growth through multiple channels. In this conversation, we talk about what influencer marketing actually means, how punk rock influenced his attitude towards business and marketing, as well as my own. We had that in common. And why spending 15 years in B2B sales made him less likely to be dogmatic about one particular approach to marketing and growth. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Neil Schaefer. A, a really strange question to ask you to start because I was listening to a podcast that you did, I think, two years ago. So uh, I'll forgive you if you don't remember the reference specifically because it was offhand. But you mentioned something about how you have a punk rock ethos and background. And this was in reference to you doing things your own way, being entrepreneurial. So the word punk rock caught my attention. Was that deliberate? What does that mean to you? Yeah, punk rock is sort of anti authoritarian. So uh, I guess from a content perspective, because that's what people are content marketers that are listening to this podcast. I think it's saying, well, why can't I rank on the first page of Google? All this other stuff, there's a brand name behind it, but the content ain't that great. I can do better. So it's having this more like this aggressive that, you know, I don't have to listen. I don't have to do things as I've been told. I can reach greater heights by doing it my way. Um, if everybody is zigging, I zag. Mm. And that that to me, there's also this ethos, one of my favorite bands, uh, this is like real niche band, they were called the Minutemen. And the uh, leader of the band, the bassist Mike Watt, after most of their live performances, he would say, go out there, create something, be an artist, start a band. It was this whole like do-it-yourself sort of uh, environment that he was preaching. And that to me is also part of this like punk rock of, you know, um, do it yourself, right? You don't have to have a fancy camera to start a YouTube channel. Uh, I started my podcast literally on my iPhone uh, using the voice app, which limited me to eight minute episodes because that was the extent at which it could record. So that definitely has has kept me, uh, I don't know, it's sort of lit my fire and I think it's probably come out of my voice right now as well. Um, and it's really interesting because I know we're going a little bit off the topic of content marketing, but you know, I wrote a book on influencer marketing and once you begin to get authority in your space, you have a lot of people, a lot of entities, a lot of brands reach out to you. And it's like, I don't want to be controlled by a brand. I don't want to be controlled by anyone. It's probably why I'm a solopreneur and why I like to, you know, have my own consultancy uh, and do things the way I do. Um, but yeah, um, I think that we all have so much potential and we sometimes limit ourselves. So to me, the whole punk rock ethos is um, I'm going to go uncontrolled uh, and I'm going to go for the ceiling of whatever uh, I'm out there to accomplish and I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. This lights me up too. I, I played in a punk rock band in high school. No way. And, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, and it sounds like you actually have like the punk rock kind of like music roots too. Like it's, you know, an idea, but also there was the music and the DIY scene that kind of influenced that. Yeah, no, I was a big, I, I played violin like when I was young and I was actually in a band in high school where we put a, a pickup on the violin and, and sort of play. But yeah, I was heavily, you know, I grew up in Southern California right when Southern California punk rock scene was happening. I had older I had older brothers who had friends that would take me to concerts when I was like a freshman in high school. Um, and yeah, I saw some amazing uh, music back then. And that really, that's like my DNA. That's like in my blood, right? <laughs> um, I just, you know, my, my daughter's like, you know, why don't you like listening to like Duran Duran and wham and i'm like dude like when i was growing up i hated that stuff like it was so sappy and poppy and like it's got to be guitar based drums so so yeah that's me <laughs> there was something about it too that i think like in a in a land uh, absent of opportunity there was something seductive about the idea that you could you could do things without permission and that was the diy ethos that i kind of was inspired by through that scene like i remember i grew up in a small town and we were all underage so we couldn't play at bars and stuff like that so we we played music we were practice we were playing songs and we're like what do we do like how do we get gigs and we ended up just like renting out the town hall in my small town and <laughs> booking other bands from the area and we're like let's just do it ourselves you know and i think a lot of how i've come to create uh content like i did the same thing starting like a personal website when i was like how do I get jobs? How do I get picked? I'm like, 
I'll just start writing about stuff and see like what happens. You know, I think when you have that thread line, it becomes a, a very powerful uh, operating model, you know, for putting stuff out in the world. Yeah. So this, this band called the Minutemen, they were good friends with Black Flag. They were on their label and Black Flag is Henry Rollins. And, and you get the whole picture there for those of you that know punk rock. But um, one of uh, their like themes also was we jam econo, right? Um, you don't need expensive instruments, expensive amplifiers to be able to jam. And that also like, you know, every time I'm investing in a tool or, you know, I need to hire a resource, uh, I am definitely trying to jam Econo because I, I don't need like, you know, the, the, the nice fix ups. I want to see the actual quality of, of the work or the product and then pay what I think is fair for that. So in many ways, growing up, <laughs> listening to that music has influenced me. I love that. I want to talk more about a couple of the influences that I've heard just doing research and listening to your other podcast interviews. Um, one is that you said you did B2B sales for 15 years. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting... Because do you consider yourself like a content marketer now? Or like, what do you kind of primarily consider yourself in the marketing world? Yeah. So my background, I do not have a traditional marketing background. And I will be very open in saying that. My background is more uh, B2B sales. Uh, and this is before social media. But it was B2B sales in Asia, in foreign countries, where I was often like VP of sales or country manager. So I had to wear a lot of hats. I was almost like an entrepreneur having my own company inside a bigger company. So, well, in order to get sales, what do we do? We got to build relationships. We got to go to conferences. We got to build up partners. So inevitably, through the act of playing this role, I started to do a lot of things that were quasi-marketing without knowing I was doing marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one second, sorry, my son is asking for more screen time. Um, and uh, it, it was that that when social media really started and I moved back to the United States and I was in transition. And at the end of the day, I got really active on LinkedIn. I launched a blog all about LinkedIn. And then we had the Lehman Brothers crash. It was 2009. And I, I ended up writing a book on LinkedIn and that led to all these opportunities. Back then, you know, the marketing or the budgets for social media weren't in sales. They were all marketing. In fact, back then, you know, it was also PR. So I, I like to say social media is sort of an industry that found me. And really, it was companies that were trying to figure out how do they leverage this for their business. And I was trying to figure out and help them try to fit in where they would leverage it for their business. And marketing was always the answer. And so I just became, uh, you know, someone that self-studied, right? Um, but tapping into my own business experience before that, but also helping a variety of companies very, very early on in my career, I was able to gain this expertise because you you learn by doing, right? And by analyzing and by optimizing. And, you know, I think it was like 2011 where people started calling me a marketer. And I'm like, okay, because um, the majority of my work at that point was social media marketing, even though I had this book on LinkedIn and I had this B2B sales background. So I still do social selling trainings, but um, I had this uh, question asked to me on another podcast very recently. You know, I look at business very holistically, right? So I don't consider myself a content marketer. I wrote a book on influencer marketing, the age of influence. I don't consider myself an influencer marketer either. I want to help businesses leverage digital and social media marketing uh, for their business. And, you know, if, if SEO is the right solution for one and content marketing for another and influencer marketing for another and, and TikTok for another, that's great, right? I want to be able to be the doctor who prescribes the best solution and implements best practices in helping them uh, solve their issue. And that's always been my goal, never to be a one-trick pony, but to really be, I guess you could call it a generalist, um, but to be dangerous enough in every single topic uh, to be able to help companies. I like that fluidity. And I think that's great in comparison to sometimes people get very dogmatic about what they specifically do. And they think, if you're not doing this, you're going to be left behind. But it's like, it's all contextual, right? It's a conflict of interest then. Because, you know, and I I noticed that after I finished the rough draft of my first book on LinkedIn, um, I then, okay, what's next? I then became a huge uh, user of Twitter. This is back in 2009. So I was very early. And even Facebook was starting to open up to you know, people older than university students at the time. And I never wanted to be like, I didn't want to force my clients into just using LinkedIn. 
And I didn't want to only be able to take on business if it had a LinkedIn angle. It was just unrealistic with the way that business works. And what happens if LinkedIn goes out of business, right? Mm-hmm. All those people that evangelized, you know, Dig or StumbleUpon or MySpace or Google Plus and we can, or a Clubhouse more recently, right? Um, I, I, I've, I have a historical perspective on that stuff. And I knew that I needed to understand the landscape. And then, like I said, become the doctor to be able to prescribe the right solution. So, yeah, I don't like that dogmatic. You, you have to do this. These days, like you have to do NFTs. It's like, well... Yes, <laughs> NFTs are growing. They're one part of the landscape. But, you know, if you invested that same $10,000 into SEO, you might get a little bit better performance than investing in NFT right now, depending on your audience. So it's having that really holistic perspective. Um, we jam Econo. If it was my money, this is how I'd spend it. And that's the way I approach my, you know, client relationships as well. I think it's also like, you could do all of these things and you could phone it in just because other people are doing it and because you think you should, but are you actually going to maximize your effort if you're just kind of like doing it because you think you should be doing it versus really focusing on like where your strength is? If you're not, if you're, it's opportunity costs or opportunity profits, right? Yes, you could do it, but what if you did this or what if you did that? And that's really, that's our role. Um, you know, agency owner or, or consultant of, of helping navigate our clients into understanding based on our experience, what's going to be the best bet for their buck. Do you think there are any universals in the digital marketing space? Because even me, like running a content agency, I saw a big thought leader in the content marketing space say, if, if a company, if I visit a company's website and they don't have a blog, I don't buy from them. And I was like, are you kidding? Like that's I, I haven't visited most of the company's blogs that I buy from regularly. Like that just it, it isn't even a factor in most of my purchases. So I don't know. That that just didn't make sense to me. So I, I think, you know, you don't have to do content marketing. A lot of companies could do it and get a lot of value from it, but some are in spaces where it's not actually going to provide that much value in comparison to something like sales or paid acquisition. So I'm wondering if there is any anything universal about this. Well, first of all, I've realized that some quote unquote thought leaders say things to go out on a limb, to spark conversations like the one we're having, which then <laughs> right. makes we them fell into the conversation, trap. right? <laughs> um, there, there's, there's a portion of people, and it, it, I see it in digital and social media marketing as well, that they want to cling on to the new thing or they, they say extreme things to juxtapose their values. It's really funny because early on in my career when I was in Asia, uh, this is before I got into social media, but I actually got an offer to be a brand manager at Procter and Gamble. So in, in Asia, so I, I had enough marketing mindset that that you know they were willing to hire me. And I'll never forget it was like a group. I won't even say a group interview, but they basically had a hundred of us in a room in Tokyo, and they split us into ten tables, and we were each talking about an idea about a product and how we'd market it. And I'll never forget one person said, "Well, I you know if this was this, I would definitely buy it." And I remember saying, no, it's not about what we would buy. It's about will our customers buy it or not? We have to take our emotions out of that decision and base it off of data. And, you know, that's probably why I got the offer was because I gave that answer, right? And when I see people like thought leaders just saying it has to be done one way, I I feel the same thing. No, there is no one way. But I will say, you know, I I often get asked this early on in my career when I did a lot of social media marketing speeches and, you know... Should I be in social media? Like, you know, I run a utility. Should I be in social media? Like, what's the use? It's a monopoly. I don't have to market. It's like, well, but people are going to talk about your, and you know, this utility actually ran into some uh, crisis communication issues like Mm. a year later, which brought them into social media. So there is a role. Every company should have a social media presence at a minimum to build goodwill with the public, right? Um, Even if you're not doing marketing. I would say the same for content, because if you look at, Discover, if you look at marketing today, right? Every company wants to grow. I mean, that's, you know, that's even nonprofits want to grow. So whether you're for profit or nonprofit, you, you have a mission. Part of the mission is in being able to serve more people or serve more businesses, what have you. And with digital, you know, post COVID acceleration of this digital transformation of how we consume things in the media we watch, you know, there's three main areas that we consume digital information. One is social media, so you can't just ignore it, right? Another one, believe it or not, is, is email. Email is still relevant. And mm-hmm. I, you know, well, part of it may be on text, but it's still primarily email. And then you have search. And whether it is Google or whether it is YouTube or whether it's Apple Podcasts, whether it's Amazon, you know, everything that the single universal unifying thing about all this, it requires content. Now, whether you call it content marketing or not is another story. But content is like is is the lifeline of of digital. 
and we are all digital and and we are just using digital for more and more things in life. So I, I think that, you know, for that reason, content is a universally, uh, it's a universal necessity. Let's put it that way. Um, we could argue about like, hey, content marketing, or maybe you don't need SEO, or maybe you don't need a blog. Um, if you want to get discovered in search engines, you need content. Is it a blog? I mean, a blog is a con- most convenient way to do it that most companies decide to do, but there's other ways of doing it without a blog. Let's put it that way, right? Um, but it, it still requires content. Uh, and if you only have one page of content, you're only going to be indexed by so many keywords. That's why you need to have more. If you only have one podcast episode, you know, you lose some credibility. That's what, why you want to have more. And I'd say the same thing with websites. If you only have one page, you don't have the credibility of, well, what, you know, what else about you? What's your history? What's, you know, there's all these questions, all these red flags. So I think content is, is the great equalizer. And it is something that smart companies invest more and more in. And I think it was Coca-Cola like a decade ago said, we're not, you know, we're, we're a content company. We're, you know, we're, we're investing heavy on it. And, and they were bang on. Um, even Gary Vaynerchuk, like seven, eight years ago. And I'm, I'm, you know, we're all, we're all fans of Gary Vaynerchuk. And then a lot of us like criticize him, but you know, he was like six, seven years ago, I'm doubling down on content and he's absolutely right. Right. Um, you sort of want to be everywhere, especially if you're a Gary Vaynerchuk. So yeah, if there's any universal truth, it's content. You need content for all this. I guess to your point, your point you made earlier about the social um, for the utilities company too, it's like some of these things are actually Swiss army knives. Like I often get in my own lane where like, I'm so growth focused and acquisition focused, like because of my background, um, that I think of these things sometimes as like, if you can't acquire customers in like an economic way, then it's not maybe worth it. But you kind of mentioned like almost a customer service utility of the utilities company. Uh, content can also be used for retention. Like I know this company, ButcherBox, they, they don't have like a, I guess their blog is outward facing, but the content they produce is almost exclusively for customers. It's it's all like recipes from the stuff that you buy from ButcherBox. So it's like you get more utility from the product. So yeah, I guess there's like multiple angles that you can take from from social, from email, of course, right? Like onboarding emails, welcome emails, all that stuff. And content just is kind of the, I don't know, the fuel that supplies all of this stuff. Yeah, um, I'm in. I'm right now currently repurposing my blog content into email sequences, into YouTube video scripts. So once you have content, the beautiful thing is there's many forms it can take, and that's why repurposing becomes this key skill that content marketers should have. Um, but but yeah, I, I I think that it can serve different purposes. I once uh, was one of my clients was a public utility, and they hired me for crisis communications, and I said, look. I don't want to be doing your crisis communications. I want to be building goodwill with the public by being out there in social media, answering questions, sharing advice, right? Um, they had no business to gain from that, but they did. Their their goodwill is their sales. Their goodwill is their asset. And for a lot of companies, yes, it's just retaining customers, especially with you know SaaS business models. That's huge. That's a small investment to make to keep people happy. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, your own podcast. Your, uh, yes. your uh, Can you tell me more about your podcast? Yeah, so my podcast has undergone a few different names. I originally started my podcast back in 2013 as a content marketing initiative, meaning that, oh, I need to check the box of having a podcast. I'm going to launch a podcast without being a podcast listener myself. Amazingly, uh, that podcast went on and off for about six years. And it was really when I was uh, about to publish The Age of Influence, which is this influencer marketing book I published in March 2020. It was in late 2019. Um, where I was in the office of one of my clients and the, the marketing person I was speaking with, she was younger than me and she was talking about how she listens to Spotify all the time. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I love Spotify. And for me, it's all music. She goes, no, I listen to just podcasts on Spotify. I'm like, really? And, you know, she had like wild hair and I thought maybe she was into some cool music. And and she's like, no, like podcasts are, they're like brain food. They're amazing. And that is when I started back in late 2019, like a hundred you know, something episodes into my podcast, which, like I said, went through a few different names that I began to really become an active listener of podcasts. I realized, man, I've been doing it all wrong. And so the first episode I published after that was, if you want to do well, you want to do all TikTok, you got to become a consumer TikTok. You want to do all Mm -hmm. YouTube, you got to watch a lot of YouTube videos. Same with podcasting. So since then, uh, it was called Maximize Your Social Influence. Recently, because I'm working on my next book, which is going to be more of a digital marketing playbook, it's called Your Digital Marketing Coach. And it's really... You know, everybody needs a digital marketing coach. So tune into the podcast to get advice on a, on a wide variety of subjects. And uh, yeah, I, I really have fun doing it. And it is, you know, for me, 
I talk about, you know, search, email, social search is blog, podcast, YouTube. And if you can get all three done, you know, I'm, I'm publishing four blog posts a week. Uh, I'm publishing weekly podcasts. YouTube for me is the final frontier. I'm trying to get into weekly cadence. Mm-hmm. I've published, I don't know, maybe eight times. Uh, so you do video specifically for YouTube or do you repurpose the other stuff that you're doing from like your podcast? I do specifically for YouTube. So mm-hmm. I'm not repurposing my podcast. In fact, I don't even have like blog posts for my podcast. It's on a subdomain and I do do show notes and transcripts, but blog posts are written. They're written for search engines. YouTube videos are recorded for the YouTube search engine and what mm-hmm. it likes. Podcast is purely for the conversation and the engagement with the listener. So that's the best way to leverage these things is to create the content. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. I say I publish four blog posts a week. One of them is republished content. And I, I do a lot of this because if I want to teach my customers, I need to get the data myself, right? So a lot of this is my own R&D. So once a week, I do republish blog content, which is, is a best practice once you get your, your library of content. And I notice like there's one blog post I'm working on now. So it's about types of influencers as a keyword. And I said, look, there's only two types of influencers out there. You either have those that like, know, and trust, uh, uh, like, know, and trust your brand or those that don't. And so the name was, you know, these are the two main types of influencers. And when I go into the search results, I'm ranked 12th or 13th, but everyone ahead of me is like, these are the eight types of influencers. These are 11 types. So it's like, yep. okay, you want me to play the game? This is my punk rock roots. I'll play the game. I'll outdo mm-hmm. you. I don't necessarily need to have like 15 or 20 or 25, but if that is what Google is determining, what people are engaging with and looking for when they do that search, then I need to optimize my content for that. It's not about what I think. It's about adapting it to the search engines. It's writing for humans, but it's understanding search intent and the way that search engines, the way that the search engine results is giving me the data of the smartest people in the world at Google and their algorithms. It's telling me what what people are looking for, right? So I'm gonna take that knowledge and I'm gonna do better. So that's a, a great example of really, you know, respecting each type of content, each medium for the medium and optimizing for it instead of just trying to take something and, and use it everywhere. Um, even like, you know, I'll have, uh, I talked about repurposing a blog post for a video script. I have like a top 41 blogging tools, right? I'm not going to do a video about 41 blogging tools because most videos that do well are like five, 10, 15 minutes max. That's too much. So I'm going to narrow it down to 10 mm-hmm. and I'm going to, I'm going to do a little bit more storytelling, make it a little more animated and engaging rather than on the blog, it's going to be a different tone. So that, that gives you an example of how if even if you're going to repurpose, it's never a one-to-one relationship. It's always optimizing it for that platform. Doesn't the <clears throat> the search part of it frustrate you to a certain extent? The idea that like you you know the space so well, like you know what the topic should be and how you should format it, but like you you have to ratchet it up and play against all the other players, right? So there's the listicle example, and I remember an editor way back in the day being like, "Hey, you need to have 34 Google Analytics features, not 32." And I'm like, "Well." Oh, it's got to be an odd number, right? <laughs> yeah, odd numbers something. perform better. Yeah. All these rules. And I was like, well, this is this is the article. Like, there's nothing I can add. Um, but there's other topics where it's like, I, I see what the search intent is. And I know that the search intent is actually inaccurate because of almost the snowball effect. Because yeah. so many large websites have the privilege of the domain rating that yeah. they can get ranked. And then people read that. They research it and basically repurpose their other article. You know, And then all of a sudden, you have this SERP that is incredibly non-representative of what the topic actually should be about it's but it's warped. like it, yeah and if you want to get on the first page you you, you kind of have to play to that intent well in the back of your mind knowing that i mean this isn't even accurate you know yeah you know the strategy that i take and i'm um like i said i, I do a lot of r&d with my own content and and I get a lot of data from my clients content working as a consultant. I can work with a lot of companies. And, and so I, I am a originally social media marketer that turned digital marketer, right? Mm-hmm. So SEO and email marketing, things like that are still relatively fresh for me compared to someone that's jaded and has been doing them for a decade and, and what have you. So I tend to think of things a little bit differently. Maybe it's the punk rock background as well. So, you know, my theory is, look, I went after, I was publishing a book on influencer marketing and only had like one or two blog posts on the subject. So if I want to be found in the biggest search engine of them all, I need more content. Mm. And when I realized that, who are my competitors? HubSpot, they're a CRM. They're not influencer marketing. Uh, Sprout Social, they're not an influencer marketing platform. And then you have these influencer marketing platforms that were ranking, but the content was just, they're trying to sell their platform. It wasn't Mm -hmm. really uh, third-party objective content. 
So I said, you know, I'm going to own this space. And I have the advantage of being a person rather than a brand. So there's a trust that comes with a person rather than seeing a company trying to sell you their product. Um, And I've been able to do really well with that strategy. And it's something I teach my clients, which is you are the expert in something. And what happens is all these HubSpots and everyone, they want to gain your markets. They've already maxed out, right? They've already maxed out the potential of their own major keywords. Now they want to branch out into others and they want to own other spaces. But since you're the expert in this space, you should own it. And you can write better than anything they can because they're just hiring content writers who are doing research on the internet and they're limited by what's already out there is my opinion about all that content that we see out there, but you have your own experiences and you know it deeper and better. And you, and, and every one of my clients that has taken that approach has actually been able to work their way up the search engine rankings and actually outperform, um, you know, uh, websites that have much higher domain authority because there there's general domain authority, but then there is true domain authority is about what domain What is your specialty? And I think Google does look at that, what you're an expert on. Um, You know, it's like when I, if I was to blog about something, like if I was to blog about NFTs, I've never blogged about NFTs before. They're not going to see me as an expert compared to a website where all they talk about is NFTs. Case in point, influencermarketinghub.com is still number one in influencer marketing related keywords. Right now, neilshafer.com is number two, according to the keywords I'm tracking, right? Um, So, you know, NFTs is going to be different. And, but if, if your specialty is something and that's all you blog about and you build up this library of content and you generate enough backlinks to fuel it and your content, when given the opportunity, when Google serves it up in the first page and you're able to keep people on your site a decent amount of time, people are engaging with the content, you can outperform the big people. So if, if they're not directly competing with your product, that, that's the conclusion I've come to. And that's what I encourage all of my customers to do as well. I like it. It's an optimistic viewpoint and I agree with it. It's funny you mentioned HubSpot. I don't know if you knew this, but myself and my two co-founders all worked at HubSpot before this. Oh, wow. (laughs) And you are spot on. (laughs) At the end of every quarter, it would be this scramble because we're like, we already rank for all the keywords. Like, what do we write about now? Because, you know, your goals keep increasing. It's like, just because you've hit all the keywords doesn't mean you want to stop growing traffic. So you end up expanding out and writing about all kinds of stuff. It, it's smart because as I talk about in my book, you know, when you yield influence, you need to take advantage of it. Because mm-hmm. if you don't, you always have competitors trying to get your influence. So what HubSpot is doing is what I would do as well. It's a bang on strategy. You want to right, leverage yeah. that influence, that domain authority to be able to own anything and everything that might be even slightly related. Like, what is this thing about like top 10 productivity tips? What does it have to do with HubSpot, right? I mean, it's all over the place, but it makes sense. And you have a budget and you get you get the traffic, you get the cookies, you get the retargeting. So there's yep. a financial reason why the content makes sense. Build the email list too. And eventually that yeah. person may become a customer because now they've got multiple product suites and casting a wide net totally makes sense in that case. Yep, it totally does. Um, why did you, what was the impetus for writing a book about influencer marketing? So every book that I've written, that was my fourth book was really about, you know, needs of what I saw in the market for my clients. So with declining organic reach in social media, and like I said, I was primarily a social media marketer for so long, I then began to realize it was really, I I teach at a few universities and I guest lecture as well. So I was guest lecturing a uh, MBA class at USC and it was on social media marketing. And this is back in like 2018. And normally when I talk about social media marketing, the questions I got asked were about the technology, like the tools or about the ROI. Like how do you measure it? And you know, is it is it really profitable? What have you? But that day was the first time when the number one question I got asked was not just about influencer marketing, but also, hey, you know, I have a friend that makes like a thousand dollars every time they post an Instagram. How do I get in on the game? <laughs> so like younger, you know, professionals, late 20s, early 30s. And that's where I realized that you know, maybe there is something to influence the market that I really hadn't been paying attention to. And it's really when I started to dig through it that I realized that it's a concept that um, people just misunderstood. Uh, you know, marketers were miseducated on the potential, especially with declining organic reach, you know, truly collaborating with influencers, it gives you access to content. It gives, you know, exposure to your content. And it really allows you to cut through every algorithm that every social network has. There's so many benefits but people still think, oh, you know, I don't want to pay, I don't want to spend money on people that have all these fake followers or influencers are expensive. And and they missed the fact that some of their customers might be influencers, some of their employees might be influencers. Maybe it's my B2B background and seeing the growth of employee advocacy and all this. 
and you know, went and interview influential people on my podcast because I knew they'd share the show. And that, I mean, that's all influencer marketing. It's not mm-hmm. just Instagram. It's all these platforms and all these mediums. And once I saw that, it's like, okay, I need, I need to share this because this is something that can be so valuable to so many companies. And at the time, um, that's, that's what I did. And I, I wrote the book on the subject. And it's funny because after that, I published it the day California went on lockdown. And I had all these companies reaching out to me with, they wanted help for influencer marketing. But I realized that they still had gaps. Like, wait, wait, you don't have a website and you want to do influencer marketing or wait, wait, you want to do influencer marketing, but how are you going to, you know, how are you going to convert these people into becoming customers? You don't have an email list. And I realized that there were a lot of digital infrastructure pieces that people were missing or companies were missing because they were going after the sexy influencer marketing. So -hmm. that's when I realized, okay, yes, we can do influencer marketing, but there are other things you can do that might be more effective, right? Or you don't even have a social media channel. You want to work with influencers. You should probably have a social media channel. Um, it's going to help you work with influencers, actually, to show them that you're real, incredible, what have you. So um, that, that actually, that book led me to this next stage, which is everything digital and social. It all sort of has to work together, especially with the pandemic and how much we're accessing you know, digital across all these different areas. Um, so yeah, I mean, my next book will, I mean, influence marketing becomes a critical part of everything I teach and, and all the work with my clients. But yeah, um, my, my next book will definitely be more of like this general digital marketing playbook, really, which includes influencer marketing, includes content marketing, includes social media marketing, really wraps everything up into this playbook. Integrated marketing communications. That's the way. Whatever you want to call it, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think they called, well, I don't remember. I think they had some word like that when I was studying in college. Um, See, I was but... a liberal arts. I went to a liberal arts college. I was Asian studies major. So they didn't teach business um, <laughs> where I went to college. So. <laughs> I actually want to ask you about that because you, you did mention you did business in Asia before and I, I want to dive into that. But first, like while we're on the influencer marketing topic, I should admit that I am probably one of the people who don't necessarily understand influencer marketing. Not not that I don't understand the value, um, but I think it's the term itself that feels like nebulous to me. Or like I'm, tr- I'm tr- having trouble realizing what influencer marketing is because when I think of it, obviously this is what most people think of it. It's like paying Kim Kardashian to like promote your your like skincare brand or something like that. But the way you made it sound is like, that's the misconception. And there's actually probably layers beneath that would be more likely to convert for your audience. So <laughs> what is influencer marketing? Like, is it, is it specific to social? Is it just paying influencers? Like, are you just borrowing their audiences or like, how do you conceptualize influencer marketing? Like, can this fit into content marketing or? Yeah. Yeah. You know, while you talk, I'm actually on the HubSpot site because back in like 2010 or 2011, um, HubSpot reached out to me and said, hey, uh, you know, if I can find this book, hold on a second here. Um, I think it was called, no, this is from LinkedIn. Okay. But they, they basically reached out to me. I had written a book on LinkedIn, uh, Lewis Howes, who had written a book on LinkedIn, and a few other LinkedIn influencers who all uh, submitted chapters that became part of the ebook. So it gave HubSpot, this was early on. I mean, they were they were already credible back then, but they're nothing like they are today. It gave them credibility that they had these experts that, that wrote mm. these chapters. And then they knew that every one of these experts was going to share that ebook with their networks. And that's the core of influencer marketing, right? Mm. Is to make someone that has influence part of something so that they would naturally share it. Now in B2B, when you lend your platform, podcast, YouTube, blog, ebook, to an influencer, you don't necessarily need to pay them money, right? right. Um, there are cases where I have worked with companies where they paid me money because they didn't have the platform that I have and they wanted to co-author an ebook with me, but they wanted me to aggressively promote it on my website and they were willing to pay for that because otherwise if they paid Google or Facebook, you know, they're probably going to be more effective with me. So, But it's the same concept. It's collaborating with a content creator, right? Because anyone that has influence is creating content. You don't get influential in social media on YouTube, podcasts, without actually creating content. So we have this term called the creator economy, which everyone is all, they love that word. When we talk about influencer marketing, they they think they're trying to get scammed, right? But it, it's mm. part of the same thing. Influencer marketing is, is a subset of the creator economy, right? And these are all the same people, the creators. Influencer economy is only like the brand collab part. But really what you're looking at is people that can reach the people that you want to reach, right? 
at the heart of it. So these are people that because they talk about knitting all the time and they have 2,000 followers that just follow this person because of all their knitting advice. Well, if I sell knitting supplies, I'd love to have that person somehow talk about my brand. And what's really interesting is I've worked with companies where, you know, we'll use like an email appending service um, where they have like a customer database and we'll try to find social media profiles. And they already have bona fide, you know, people in, in the six figures of Instagram followers that are their customers that they've yet to tap into. So when I wrote my book, I thought the issue with all these companies and the way they approach influencer marketing is they're chasing the vanity metrics. They're chasing number of followers and the people, with a lot of followers are charging a lot of money and they're promoting brand A today and brand B tomorrow instead of looking at people that already like, know, and trust them, looking at your customers, looking at your followers, looking at people who engage with you on social media, and yes, looking at your employees. And if you were to go through these people, you're going to find people that have a thousand followers on Twitter. 2,000 followers on Instagram. And if they talk about things that are natural to what your company does, then you would want to find a way to collaborate with them. And when they talk about you, it's going to come from the voice of authenticity because they're already your customer. They'd love to work with you. And guess what? These people don't need money, maybe free product, but that's a lot cheaper, right? And you're making them happy. And and you get to the point where they're a true advocate and they talk about you without you having to ask them to. So -hmm. that's really the heart of my book is looking at creating this type of, you can call it a brand ambassador program, but but creating that program to tap into those that already know, like, and trust you and, and leverage their voice to incite word of mouth marketing and social media. So when you look at influencer marketing that way, I mean, we, we have to put a term on it and that I call it influencer marketing. I'm trying to redefine the term. It's like, yeah, we've already been doing that. Uh, most companies have in some aspect already been doing a part of it. It's not it's not the transaction. It's the fact that you're collaborating with someone. Some people do it for free. Some people may request money. Some a lot of money. Some just product. It's all over the board. But you're tapping into someone. And guess what? The people you tap into are probably creating better content than you can create because they became influential or they gained their thousands of followers because of their content and their way they engage. So they offer a lot of uh, a lot of value to your company, right? They know how to engage with people. They know how to create great content. They might understand what's going on in your industry. They might know what's going on with your competition. They might be a great person to have as part of a user focus group. Um, they just have a lot more value than just someone that can amplify your content. So those are the things that I teach. And really, you know, instead of looking at social media as a way to promote what you do, look at it as a way to develop relationships with people that can help promote what you do in a natural and authentic way. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. Um, that it it helps me wrap my head around it more because now I'm thinking. I did a convo with um, with Andy Crestedina from Orbit Media. Oh, we awesome talked guy. about how yeah, he's great. He he talked about how they basically have a rule. It's like an unwritten rule now where every blog post they publish has I think three quotes from experts or something like that. Um, Smart. Cause yeah, then they're going to share the content and you get better content because they're experts. And frankly, like you know, somebody asks me to share my opinion. I'm happy to talk about things that I'm passionate about. And I also want a backlink. So I kind of, I understand the incentive structure for stuff like that. Um, One question I have, and you kind of touched on this a little bit with the vanity metrics thing is let's say Andy reaches out to me and my uh, co-founder, Ali, we both have like five or 6,000 Twitter followers, but I'm pretty sure Ali's Twitter followers are way more engaged with her. Like mine probably care less about what I have to say. So how can you... How do you gauge that? You know, like who who is actually influential outside of just the pure numbers? Like I feel like everybody who listens to Tim Tim Ferriss has a big audience now, but he's also like people like his product recommendations. Like they they literally want his ads, whereas like yeah. a similar size audience, m- you know, may not take all of the recommendations so seriously. So I don't know. There there feels like there's some intangible like stickiness or like influential factor with with regards to actual recommendations. Well, I mean, why do people follow you, right? So I have no idea, (laughs) right? So, I mean, that's the first thing is they probably like a network like Twitter, they follow you because of the content you publish. So if you're publishing content about content marketing and go into your followers, look at the bios. uh, I do this often with with Twitter. I I audit my followers and it's like, you know, marketing, PR, communications. There's, you know, a fair number of writers, authors, entrepreneurs, but they're all following because of the marketing advice that I'm giving them. And therefore, if I talk about a tool, I know it's going to resonate with them. So, you know, if I start talking about punk rock and what bands I recommend, it's not going to resonate with them. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is, you know, the influence all, always has a relevance filter. Why are people following this person? It's not about the number of followers. It's about why they're following. What content do they engage with? 
And that's really the key thing, right? Now, for some things, I mean, I'm working with a client right now who basically wants to encourage companies to pull out of Russia. So it's more like a nonprofit cause marketing type of thing. And for him, he just wants to spread the word. Any retweet that he can get just exposes his his mission to more people. So for him, it's number of followers, you know, but it's also like active people, right? These are people that are active on Twitter that um, and they get engagement. And, you know, one problem with Twitter, like with my account, you'll see a lot of tweets. You don't see the clicks. And the clicks are often way more than the number of likes or the number of comments or responses. So that's mm. something we can't analyze, but we can at least analyze what sort of likes they're getting, right? And we can get a feel, okay, is this person even getting one like on average or is it a big fat zero? And I think from there you can start to vet, okay, well, if this person publishes something around this topic, it's probably going to get some engagement. And that's really where I'd start. But I think when it gets down to like experts you know, um, I just talked about this on another podcast this morning, but sorry to repeat myself, but, um, you know, doing searches, like if I wanted to be influenced about content marketing, I'm going to do a search on Google, right? Who pops up? I'm going to find lists of content marketing experts. Who's on the list. I'm going to do a hashtag search content marketing, Instagram. I'm going to do a search on LinkedIn. I'm going to do a search on YouTube. Who are, I'm going to look at Twitter lists, right? Who are the people that are popping up all over the place? And that's going to give me an idea that those are true experts and influencers in that space. Mm-hmm. So that's another, if you if you were just curious about it, but when we're talking about people that aren't as influential as those experts, it's really getting down to, you know, if they're not showing up in the search results, what are they talking about? And are they getting any engagement whatsoever? And if they're not, maybe you should look elsewhere. I'm pretty sure we uh, found you on the the BuzzSumo list of top 100 content marketing influencers. Well, there so, you go. <laughs> so is, is this influencer marketing? Uh, yeah, I mean, most podcasts are, are, are of an interview format is influencer marketing. You're, you're hoping, I mean, obviously you're, you're providing value to your audience. It gives you credibility by tapping into experts and you're hoping that the expert shares it with their audience, which they often do. Right. And expands so the overall reach. Yeah. It, it's a win-win for everybody, for the audience, for you and for me. So yes, it is a type of influencer marketing as I define it. And podcasting is a great example. And, and this is an example of companies Oh, we want to do a webinar. Well, or we want to. We're going to do our annual event. Let's bring in, you know, a top-notch speaker. That's influence marketing, right? You might have to pay for that person to speak, but you're bringing in a celebrity who gives credibility to your product. So it's it's all tapping into other people's influence for credibility, for amplification, and what have you. It's it's all the same concept. It's the same reason why before social media, you use celebrities when you wanted to, you know, have TV commercials. It's the same reason why people hired Mark Twain. To sell cigarettes, uh, you know, Babe Ruth was was selling cigarettes back in the day. Um, I, you know, I, I talk about this like in my book, like the history of the historical foundations of influence. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's been around since way before social media. The concept. Yeah, this this is cool. This is one of the cleanest definitions I've I've gotten. So um, I love that. Uh, I just want to like wind back a little bit and get some numbers. So you said you're doing four blog posts a week, correct? And a podcast. How many episodes do you put out? Per week or per month? Uh, once a week. Okay. And you're and consulting? Minor, half solo, half interview. You're consulting too? Yes. And you teach at university? So the universities are basically their executive education. So uh-huh. it just requires me to fly out like once or twice a year. It's not like a daily or weekly thing. Gotcha. And I am a, my consulting is a fractional CMO. Uh-huh. So it's, it's very manageable in terms of the hours. Um, and I, I also speak, so it, it's a combination of things that's always in flux, uh, in terms of revenue, but I also have a team I work with. So, um, I, I realized that in order to be able to publish at that frequency, I, I want to think like a CEO and a CEO would have employees help. So right. yes, I do have a team that helps me with, all, even though I personally curate it, I do have people that help implement a lot of what I'm talking about. That's, that's totally where I was going with this is like, what is your production function? <laughs> How do you manage your day and get so much done? That's, that's, it's always fascinating to me, the productivity stuff. Yeah. So, um, for the blogging, one out of four blog posts is a guest blog post. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I just actually published an ebook, this, a free book this week about guest blogging. And I, I just published a podcast episode today about it. Guest blogging trick or treat, because there's been a lot said about it, good and bad. I like with influencer marketing, I think that guest blogging has been, um, un- misunderstood, and I think when done right, it can be extremely impactful. And I welcome guest bloggers to my website. I, I manage it in a way where it meets my own editorial calendar needs. Let's put it that way. 
Um, so it's still a win-win, but it's a much bigger win for me than if you just let bloggers, if you just publish whatever anything, whatever any blogger gives you, right? Um, it, it's going to be a win for them and often a loss for you. So uh, I now have a six-month waiting list. Um, wow. To, to get published in my blog because I'm serious about SEO and I'm serious about helping optimize their posts for SEO and making sure that that content gives them SEO value and for any link they, you know, they put in their author bio, what have you. So, um, so yeah, so 25% is guest blogging, 25% is republished. Republishing is a lot easier. I'm a big fan of a tool called Phrase. There are a number of these AI tools out there. Um, I think ClearScope is the one mm-hmm. that gets talked about most. I had the AppSumo Lifetime deal on Phrase. It was a killer deal. Um, and there's Surfer SEO. There's a few of them. But I'm a big fan of Phrase. I've, I've interviewed Matt Hurley uh, on my podcast. And 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 I use them for every piece of content that I publish. Let's put it that way. And, and it's been a great help. So the republishing, some content requires an additional 100 words. Um, some might require an additional 1,000 words. But it's always less work than the original blog post. So for the original blog post, I have a writer that I work with. Now, I put together the content brief. I do all the keyword research. I do all the research that says, okay, this is the outline in terms of H2, H3, H4. But I have a writer help flesh it out for me, a writer mm-hmm. that I work with for, in fact, I have a, a different writer for republishing the content. So I'm always curating and making sure that the topic covers it in the way that I want it covered. But I have someone, basically, you might call it more of a developmental editor, but I have someone mm-hmm. that fleshes it out and then I revoice it when I put it in my WordPress. So um, it sounds like a lot more work than it is, but it can actually be, once you have a system down, it can actually be quite efficient. I think this is pretty helpful. Um, this is how I'm starting to construct my life with my blog, now doing the agency and all these different things. It's almost like a forcing function when you start to get busy because you want to have like a work life balance. You, you want to have like an enjoyable life too, but you want to put out all this content and do all this interesting stuff business-wise. So for me, it's been a forcing function to figure out how to build those systems. So I think hearing you explain it in that way, um, you know, lays it out clearly for people who are like, how do, how do I even start? You know? Yeah. You know, Alex, something that really influenced me was I spoke, man, several years ago, I spoke at a nonprofit. It was like a, it was like a CEO nonprofit group. Great group to speak in front of, right? In New York City. So um, a friend of mine who is a former CEO of, of Breville, the home appliance manufacturer, he invited me. So I was able to speak to them about LinkedIn. And I met with a VP of a very, very famous brand. And he goes, hey, Neil, before you come to New York, I want you to check out this guy's blog. Let me know what you think. And so I checked out the blog and it was, you know, it was a really great blog. Um, and it was a corporate blog, right? For, uh that he was speaking on behalf of his company. And when we went out to dinner that night in Chinatown, my friend said, did you read the blog? What'd you think? I thought, I said it was absolutely, you know, thought leading, great content. He goes, hundred percent goes written by staff. Hmm. It's like, okay, right. I, I get it. Um, when you're the CEO, you have to delegate. You can't do everything. So like I said, it's always getting back to, if you're the CEO, you're at a strategic level. You're not going to write every blog, and that's okay. It's the same reason why it's really interesting. I see this. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, Pat Flynn is now taking more of a backseat to his podcast. Jay Baer just announced Social Pro's podcast. He's taking a backseat. And I get it. You cannot be personally involved with every single piece of content that you create. And it's okay. Now, when I publish on my Instagram or on my social media, it's coming from me. It's still me, but it doesn't mean that every piece of content you do, it has to be, as long as you have the quality control in place and it represents you. And that's where I have, instead of spending two hours in a blog post, I can spend 15 minutes now, right? Um, podcast. I never care. I don't care about audio editing. I don't want to learn it. I record it, send it out to my friend in Serbia. He gets it ready. I upload it done, right? Um, I even have someone, I have an assistant who will, I'll write the first paragraph of the show notes and she does the rest. And she'll manually edit the transcript. I don't need to be, I don't need to be lost in the weeds. Right? I don't need to get into the details. In fact, I'm um, for the first time, uh, I <laughs> I uh outsourced the creation of an email sequence, right? Mm. But the email sequence is all about pointing people to blog posts that I have about the subject. So I, I orchestrated, I architected what the sequence should be. And then I want you to talk about this blog post next for this reason. But I had someone flesh it out. So instead of me spending 10 hours on it, I only need to spend one hour. I'm doing the same thing with YouTube video scripts. We'll see how it goes. I I actually just placed my first orders this week. Um, But it's coming from my blog and I want to talk about these 10 things. So let you use your art and creativity looking at my YouTube videos. How would you script it out? 
so I can go into a studio with the teleprompter and just bang it out. So I think content requires, and it's something we don't talk a lot about, but content marketing operations or content operations can really help your business, especially if you're a solopreneur. But if you're a content creator, it can really help you scale. And I'm trying to test the boundaries, as you can hear me, of all of this stuff, right? Um, but there is a lot that is possible. If you have the ideas and you have the expertise and you know how to orchestrate an architect, then you can be doing a lot of what I'm talking about. All right. It's frustrating because now I have like four more topics that I want to dive into, but we're basically at time. This, so you come back on in like six or eight months and talk to me about content operations and the YouTube stuff, because I think those are the two points that I could probably spend well, another hour or two with you on. And, and Alex, my whole thing is why I do the four a week is, so I have this concept. A lot of people talk about library content, right? So it's like, okay, if I want to rank for influencer marketing, I need to be blogging weekly for a year. So my, my whole approach is I'm going to take the top 52 keywords that are relevant to my brand, that are influencer marketing related, and I'm going to go get them. The only way to get them, you need to have content to rank. That's 52 blog posts. Well, mm-hmm. I have two books about LinkedIn. I want to rank for those too. I have like 12 different categories that I want to rank for. So if you go into my SEM Rush rankings tracker, it's like 550 keywords. Mm. In order to get the 550 keywords... If I don't have the blog posts, I need to blog them. So I think the four times a week, I already calculated by the, and I really went into this starting with COVID. I had a lot of times less traveling, obviously, and I'm starting to write this digital marketing playbook. So I really want to, I use my blog content to do R&D, right? To find out what else is out there um, and leverage my own experience to try to find unique insights. So it's all part of this process. Now I can tap into all these hundreds of blog posts to write my book. But, um, but at some point, I will not need to write four blog posts a week because I, I don't think I need to republish more than once a week for mm-hmm. now. And um, and I don't plan on doing the HubSpot model. It, that's just crazy, right? But So at some point, it's going to become three times a week or even right. at some point twice a week. Probably the ideal is twice a week where it's one republished and one uh, guest blogging if, if there's interest. But then uh, now that I've started like TikTok marketing, I need to build my library of content for that, right? I need to get more active and it's, it's a big topic and it's generating a lot of search demand. So, and maybe NFTs are gonna be next, I don't know. So um, there's always new things, but that, that four times a week is purely defined by the fact that I wanna get to those keywords. And right now, Alex, I'm, I'm really happy to say if I was to go into my SEM rush and I, I mean, I can share the screen with you as well, but just give me one second here. If I was to go into SEM rush in my rankings tracker, my position tracking, and I have 575 keywords. And now if I go into my top 100, um, I rank in the top 100 for 396 of those 500. I'm only second to HubSpot. Dang it, which ranks for 469, but I already outranked Neil Patel 344, Sprout Social 317, Hootsuite 288, Wordstream 270, Buffer 267, Social Media Examiner 231, all the uh, you know the usual suspects. So um, so yeah, that's that's really why I do what I do, and for me the the you know the ROI is is the rankings and and the traffic that comes with it and how that converts and other things, um, and I encourage anyone else. Compete with HubSpot, compete with the big boys. You can do it because you know the stuff better than they do. Hell yeah. I love it. Um, where can people find you online? Where can, where can you point them? Well, I'm Neil Schaefer everywhere. So it's neilschafer.com. I'm the real Neil. So it's N E A L. And there's a few Schaefers out there. So mine is spelled S C H A F F E R. Uh, I'm Neil Schaefer everywhere in social media. And my podcast is the Your Digital Marketing Coach podcast with Neil Schaefer. So as long as you can spell my name, you should be able to find me. All right, Neil, thank you so much. Thank you, man. This is great.